This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. I look at 9-11 as a horrific crime, a mass murder. And you investigate it as such. I don't believe that the investigation is completed. There's still more to be uncovered. Catherine Hunt spent 12 years with the FBI, working counterintelligence and counterterrorism cases in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Cairo, and Baghdad. But she never quite got over something she learned after the 9-11 attacks. Two of the hijackers had been hanging out just blocks from where she regularly spent time when she was with the Bureau in the late 1990s. It was there, in a West L.A. neighborhood, where the Al-Qaeda men had multiple encounters with a suspected Saudi intelligence agent and a radical imam at a Saudi government-funded mosque. I worked out at a gym down in Venice Boulevard. And right in that area, that neighborhood, is the mosque, uh, the restaurant. Very close to that is uh, the Saudi embassy. And um, it really struck me as, gosh, all this stuff was going on right here and, you know, who knew? That led Hunt down a somewhat unexpected path after she left the Bureau. Some former colleagues had given her name to the lawyers representing the families of 9-11 victims who were suing the Saudi government. The very same lawsuit the Saudis and their lobbyists in Washington had done everything they could to derail. The lawyers asked Hunt to help them reinvestigate the events that led up to 9-11 and the role that some Saudi officials may have had in assisting or encouraging the attacks. Hunt was intrigued by the challenge, and in late October 2017, she reached out to a source she thought just might be able to help her put the pieces of the 9-11 puzzle together, Jamal Khashoggi. We'll explore what happened when she did so, and what it tells us about Khashoggi, the Saudis, and the still unanswered questions about 9-11 on this special bonus episode of Conspiracy Land. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News and the host of Conspiracy Land, and I'll be joined for this special bonus episode by my skullduggery co-host, Dan Clydman, with whom I covered the 9-11 story 20 years ago. And then we'll bring in two guests with a unique perspective on this story, Jim Kreindler, the chief lawyer for the 9-11 families suing the Saudis, and Ali Soufan, another former FBI agent who spent years investigating al-Qaeda attacks on America. So I have to say, this is a episode that is very special to me because it is so interesting on so many different levels. First, the very idea that Jamal Khashoggi, who as we've been laying out in this Conspiracy Land series we've had, was for years somebody very closely aligned with the Saudi regime. He was a media advisor to the former chief of Saudi intelligence, Prince Turki bin Faisal, who was the Saudi ambassador in London and then in Washington. Khashoggi did everything he could to present the Saudis in a favorable light, to um, push back on stories that implicated them in terrorism and al-Qaeda. And here he is, towards the end of his life, meeting with, in effect, the enemy, the, a representative, a former FBI agent who's working for the law firm representing the families who are suing the Saudi government for their alleged role in 9-11. But 
that's on one level. And on the second level, I mean, here we are coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And as Catherine Hunt outlines in the start of that interview I played, there are still unanswered questions in the minds of many people, including within the FBI, about 9-11 and possible Saudi complicity. So, Danny, you and I were, I think we were the first to write about the significance of those two hijackers who were hanging out in West L.A. where Catherine Hunt was working out at the gym. Uh, we had a big cover story for Newsweek back in uh, uh, June of 2002. And here we are. 2021 and the questions about what they were up to and what help they were getting in Los Angeles are still with us. Well, I mean, both of the levels that you talked about, Khashoggi and 9-11, recalls that line, I don't know, who was it, Churchill or someone, uh, an enigma and a riddle wrapped in a mystery. Uh, I'm probably botching it, but so many lingering mysteries. And Khashoggi, obviously, and that's what's special about this, uh, one of the things that's special about this podcast series is you bring all of that complexity to Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, he's just a fascinating character. But you look on the on the uh, the two hijackers. We actually began reporting that story in Newsweek literally days after 9/11 itself. I mean, the That's right. uh, Ground Zero was still smoldering, and we learned that the CIA had uh, tracked these two hijackers, uh, would-be hijackers, from this. Meeting Al -Qaeda in summit. In this Al Qaeda summit in Kuala Lumpur, where they planned the attacks to Thailand, literally watched them get on a plane uh, to Los Angeles, and then we stopped following them because the CIA, I guess, because the CIA couldn't operate domestically, but they also withheld the information from the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies, as Ali Sufan knows so well, who we're going to talk to him about that. And, you know, we were just astonished at the time to learn when we did that cover story that they lived openly in, in Los Angeles and in San Diego. They had driver's licenses. They had bank accounts. I, I don't know whether they were in the phone books, but they might, you know, might have as well have been. And then it was some months later, maybe about a year later, when some of the investigations uh, into intelligence failures and what actually really happened started looking into all of this, uh, where we learned about some other really suspicious things, including the possibility of Saudi involvement in the conspiracy itself, at least in some form. Absolutely. And I know that uh, both of our guests, Jim Kreindler and Ali Sufan, will have a lot to say about these issues. But before we get to that, let's listen to the rest of my interview with Catherine Hunt about her meeting with Jamal Khashoggi in October of 2017, because it's really quite interesting. And it starts out with, I'm asking her why she reached out to Jamal Khashoggi in the first place, what she thought he could bring to the table and why she thought he might be in a position to help. Let's play the interview. If you look back on the history of his career and the various positions that he had, he had a tremendous amount of connection and access to information that would be interesting to us. He also had a tremendous amount of influence. So really, he was in a position to potentially be very helpful to us. Khashoggi had, at this point, all but broken with the regime he had long defended. 
he had just written his first column for the Washington Post, accusing the country's new de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, of presiding over what he described as an unbearable reign of repression. When Hunt first reached out to Khashoggi in the fall of 2017, somewhat to her surprise, he was... Very interested in meeting uh, me. He was very smooth, professional, engaged. They talked about getting together. And then on the morning of October 26th... I wasn't even ready. He, he called uh, and said, can we... He was very upset. And he said, can we move the meeting up? And something's happened that I must attend to. Can we move the meeting up? Uh, and I said, sure, when? He said, as soon as you can get here. So we schedule it, you know, for in about 45 minutes. So Hunt rushed over to a coffee shop in Tyson's Corner, a Northern Virginia shopping mall that Jamal had suggested. When she got there, she found him still quite agitated. And he explained that he had just heard that morning from his son that he was not being permitted to fly anymore. The, the kingdom uh, was not allowing him to fly and travel. And Jamal was very upset. He didn't really understand why he was being targeted by the, the regime. And he was, you know, he called himself a, a loyal objector. I loved that term. He, term. He, was, he considered himself a loyal objector. Much later, Jamal would be described by some as a dissident, a term he never embraced. Loyal objector clearly better describes where his head was at. At that point, without referencing the curious events in Los Angeles that had intrigued Hunt, Jamal brought up the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs and its role in funding and spreading an extreme version of Islam that easily could inspire followers to commit acts of terrorism. He started to instruct me a lot about the role of the Ministry of Islamic Affairs and that they were charged with the responsibility of spreading Islam throughout the world. And he explained that really it was a fundamentalist version of Islam that was being propagated and that the current government was trying to reform that position. And then Jamal said something else that immediately got Hunt's attention. He said it more in a question. Is my country responsible for tolerating and even supporting radicalism? Yes. And they must take responsibility for that. That's pretty interesting. Yes. And... That's, I was like, well, it's golden. That's golden because that's, that's what the plaintiffs are asking. Much to Hunt's surprise, Jamal even asked if the law firm she was working for, Kreinler & Kreinler, was offering him a job. And ultimately, he was very interested in talking about it. He wanted to have the next meeting in New York, not the D.C. area. What was your takeaway? I was excited. I was thrilled that he was so positive about it. You know, I think he could have added a tremendous amount to us, for us, in uh, a variety of ways. You know, what's, what's remarkable on so many levels about this is the lawsuit that you were trying to get him to help with was something that was anathema to the Saudi government. And yet, here's this prominent journalist who's had these very close ties to his government over the years offering to help you out. Yeah, well, you know, here he was, he found himself in exile. And I think working with the the law firm would have given him um, a chip in the game, if you will. Did you, um, did you ever hear from him again? No, I didn't. Hunt was never quite sure why, but more than a year later, she got a disturbing clue. 
It was during the weeks after Jamal's murder, and there were reports that the Saudi ambassador to the United States, Khalid bin Salman, MBS's brother, may have had contacts with him in the weeks prior to his death. The ambassador tweeted his response on the official account of the Saudi embassy. As we told the Washington Post, the last contact I had with Mr. Khashoggi was via text on October 26, 2017. October 26 was the very same day that Catherine Hunt had met with Jamal at the Tyson's Corner coffee shop and discussed the possibility of him working for the lawyers suing the kingdom. Coincidence? Maybe. But what was the ambassador texting Jamal about that day? Did the Saudis know about his meeting with Catherine Hunt? Had Jamal mentioned it to the ambassador as part of an effort to get the travel ban on his son lifted? And perhaps most of all, had he been warned about the possible consequences of working with the 9-11 legal team suing his government, and what that could mean for him and his family? The answers remain a mystery, a black hole among the many during the last year of Jamal Khashoggi's life. It's a period when, as he openly challenged his own government and plotted ways to push back against its hot-headed and vindictive crown prince, Khashoggi's personal life got increasingly messy, the threats against him ever nastier, and the surveillance of him, his associates, and even one of his lovers ever more menacing. Well, that was my discussion with Catherine Hunt. And, you know, I, I think uh, I spoke to her uh, probably almost a year ago now. And all those questions I raised about what was really going on there uh, and the curious fact that the same day she has the meeting, Khashoggi was in touch with the ambassador, Khalid bin Salman, who is the brother of MBS, is pretty intriguing. Jim Kreinler, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. You are the chief lawyer for the families suing the Saudi government. Catherine Hunt was working for you when she met with Jamal Khashoggi. What do you make of this meeting, and what do you make of the fact that it's the same day as he was in touch with the Saudi ambassador to the United States. Mike, there, there isn't a doubt in my mind that after speaking to Catherine, he called KBS, Khashoggi did, and said, hey, the plaintiff's lawyers had an FBI agent talking to me. I didn't give him anything yet, but you know, you mess with my son and I'm gonna spill the beans. And in my opinion, there's no doubt that that is the reason why he was killed. You know, the, the Saudis cannot afford to have anyone in the know reveal to us in the world what Saudi officials did working with Al-Qaeda to accomplish 9-11. Did you know in real time about what took place at that meeting? Did Catherine Hunt immediately call yeah. you up and or email you and tell you, guess what, guess who I've just spoken to? And the fact that he might be willing to work for you. Yeah, so I, I don't remember if it was right after the meeting or later in the day, but Catherine called, said a very positive meeting. I think this is a great lead. We know that he's knowledgeable and he indicated that he'd come to New York and talk to you, Jim, and, uh, you know, you and your colleagues. What did you think when you heard that? It's a terrific. And, and, and back then, you know, in 2017, we maybe knew 10% of what we know today. So we were really desperate to, to get 
a great deal more information. You know, now, you know, we know so much more about what Saudi officials did for the three years before 9-11, you know, to enable the attacks to occur. But early on, you know, we're pursuing any lead, and this was a really good lead. So we were excited that uh, he, he said he'd be willing to talk to us some more. Before we bring in um, Ali Sufan, um, let me just uh, press you for a second on the Saudi motivation to kill Khashoggi. And I guess the question I have is, do you think that Jamal Khashoggi already had information or that the Saudis thought he was in a position because of his contacts, because of his, his, his influence, he would be in a, in a position to get information that they didn't want revealed or going to uh, the lawyers. I just want to kind of understand that. I, I think he already had the information. And, you know, in 2017, the information is 17, 18, and 19 years old. I mean, he knew, I believe, something of what Saudi officials were doing in 1999, 2000, and 2001. And one quick follow-up, is that information that you think has now come out, or do you think that information, largely because he was killed, uh, is still um, under wraps? So look, we are wrestling with this damn gag order imposed on us by the Saudis, our Department of Justice, and the court. If I could tell you now everything we knew about Saudi role, you know, you could see a resolution in Congress to declare war. I mean, it is, it is so dramatic, and still a great deal of the information is being withheld from us. But we're, we're, we're in the, you know, we're in this weird situation where it's our government who is prohibiting us from telling the families, much less the country and, and, and the media, what we know. Well, I was going to say Ali Soufan isn't under a gag order. <laughs> right. right. And, and nobody knows more about the run up to 9-11 than Ali Soufan. So, Ali, why don't you, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, uh, joining us on the podcast. Uh, give us your take on the meeting that Jamal Khashoggi had with Catherine Hunt and what Jim Kreinler has just said about it. Well, I'm just listening to Jim and uh, basically... What he said is is very major. And you know, he said he is aware of information that he cannot share because of a gag order by our own government and by the Saudi government and by the court that will basically force Congress to even declare war, which means they have a lot of the answers for the questions that we've been asking since uh, the immediate aftermath of 9-11. You know, first long time ago, 20 years ago, did Saudi government officials have contact with the hijackers? Well, now we know, yes, they did, at least the three of them. Uh, what is the nature of these contacts? We still don't know for sure. Did Saudi officials or Saudi agents help the hijackers in any way, shape, or form while they were in the United States? Well, even as a person who is involved in the investigation, we really don't know the nature of, uh, of, of, of uh, this help or this relationship. Why did they do it? Under whose order did they did it? A lot of questions still need to be answered. So far, the answers of these questions continue to be more classified than anything we've seen in relationship to any agency or entity in the United States or around the world. 
And today we hear Jim saying that some of the answers they possibly have from understanding what he was you know, saying here, and it's very damning. See, I think this lack of transparency, this is what breeds conspiracies. This is what creates a lack of trust in our system, in our government. This is what caused a lot of disinformation. 9-11 is an event that changed the whole world, not only in the United States. So the families of those victims who perished on that day, they deserve the truth. The U.S. deserve better than that. Now, I should point out that, you know, there was a 9-11 commission that did a pretty extensive investigation that's been widely praised, and they did reach the conclusion that they did not find evidence that the Saudi government, as a government, was complicit. But also, at the same time, they said there's a a lot of places that they don't look into because it it was outside their jurisdiction. So we're actually taking only half of the finding, and we're not taking the other half of the finding. Yeah, and, and it's way, way worse than that, Mike uh, and, and Ali, because a lot of the information that FBI agents like Steve Moore had in L.A. was never given to the commission at all. And because this was kept under wraps, agents on their own, two years after the commission, starting in 2006, opened their own investigation, Operation Encore. Right. And that ran from 2006, 2007, till it was shut down in April 2016. And, you know, having seen that information, it's hard for me to quantify it, but I, I would say at least 75% of what is now known was developed by Operation Encore after the commission. So, so to say the commission exonerated Saudi Arabia when two-thirds of the information were kept from the commission, and then five times more information is developed after the commission is shut down by Encore is nonsense. I mean, you know, I, I wish I could say to you everything I know, but— Can I but, just ask, uh, Jim, you know, what your— your sort of bottom line theory of the case is in terms of Saudi uh, involvement and Saudi motivation. And it, and I guess it's maybe more than a theory of the case because you know things that you can't reveal because of the gag order. But what do you really believe at the end of the day Saudi involvement was in the 9-11 attacks? Yeah. So I think there is a cell in the Saudi government reaching high up into Riyadh in the Ministry of Islamic Affairs that wanted to help al-Qaeda, both out of affinity with the ideology that motivated al-Qaeda and to keep al-Qaeda focused on the United States rather than, you know, people in Saudi Arabia and the royal family who would otherwise, you know, be targets of al-Qaeda's, you know, anger. Do I think the government acted as a monolith? No, but I think there's uh, a, a large group of officials, almost all of whom were in the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, who wanted to help al-Qaeda attack the United States. And it's like, you know, Iran-Contra. Is it, you know, every person uh, in, in the White House and the executive branch doing it 
or is it, you know, a group of officials acting? And I think it's it's closer to that. It, it's a group of officials, but Saudi Arabia legally is responsible for what its officials are doing. And Ali, does that sound plausible to you? Is that a, a theory that you think has enough validity that it needs to be really thoroughly investigated? I assume you, you think that? Well, there's a possibility, but I don't know. We need the facts. And we yeah. need the facts. And, and again, um, if we keep overclassifying answers, this is going to lead to a lot of conspiracies, and this is going to lead to more and, pe- more, and more people not trusting the system. I mean, we need answers. We, we cannot come up with conclusions without having the facts. Well, you, I say, you can. I am 100% <laughs> convinced <laughs> right. this was an operation of a section of the Saudi government in the Ministry of Islamic Affairs that took three years of planning to enable al-Qaeda to reach its goals. And, and you know, for Saudi Arabia to be protected uh, and have Bill Barr invoke state secrets to prevent our government from giving us information and then muzzle us so we can't talk to our clients. And then on top of that, to have secret briefings with the court where we have no idea what's being shared is to me the worst thing I'm aware of in our history. So let's just sort of zero in on you know the the gravamen of your uh, of what I believe to be your case, and it does re- relate to those two hijackers that Danny and I were talking about, who attend this Al Qaeda summit in Kuala Lumpur and then fly to Los Angeles, go through Thailand and then on to Los Angeles, LAX in January of 2000. They don't speak English. They have no particular ties to the United States, no place to go, and yet pretty soon a guy by the name of uh, Omar Bayoumi, who is a suspected Saudi intelligence agent, is in touch with him. His account is they meet at some falafel restaurant near the Saudi consulate, but Operation Encore in one of the documents that has become public from that FBI investigation late in the game, which doesn't begin to what, 2006, you said, says that a somebody in the Saudi embassy, we've since reported, it's this guy named Jara, um, who oversaw Ministry of Islamic Affairs, tasked Bayoumi and Thumeri with assisting those two hijackers. Do I have that right, Jim? You do, right. But it you know, Mike, it's even worse than that, because uh, we now know that Saudi officials came to the United States in 98 and 99, and they were talent spotting. They were going around the country, touching base with Saudi propagators to figure out where is the best place for the uh, al-Qaeda terrorists to land and begin their preparations for 9-11, learn, flight, learn English, take flight lessons, et cetera. And they eventually decide the best place to park the al-Qaeda terrorists is LA and San Diego. San Diego, because of our naval facility, 
and Al-Qaeda wanted to hit the U.S. Navy back after we launched missiles uh, following the embassy bombings. So even before Hazmi and Midhar get to LAX on January 15th for 2000, Saudi officials are in the U.S. for a year figuring out who are the best guys to take care of them. And so Jara in the D.C. embassy tells Thumeri to help the hijackers when they arrive. Because they, they have decided that L.A. and San Diego is the best location for the hijackers. So, the, you know, and, and then got all kinds of cockamamie denials of what's going on. But the Ministry of Islamic Affairs is coordinating, giving, uh, you know, uh, Bayoumi signing a lease for the hijackers. Thumeri's getting them their apartments in L.A., they're, they're scouting, uh, you know, the naval base. One of them returns to talk to bin Laden before the attacks. In my opinion, says everything is good to go. We're ready to move. And then they bring, you know, eventually bring the rest of the hijackers over so you can hijack, you know, the four planes. And what I always thought prompted Bill Barr to invoke state secrets and keep the final Operation Encore report under wraps was the embarrassment of what the CIA and FBI did and didn't do for a th really three years before the attacks that permitted the attacks to go forward. I want to I want to bring um, Ali on on that on this point because you were you live this you were investigating Al Qaeda you were in Yemen investigating the coal bombing which was October of 2000 and you're looking for the connections of Al Qaeda people and you are never told that the CIA had information about this. Al Qaeda summit, and that two of the people present, uh, Al Qaeda guys, Al Madar and Al Hazmi, were in the United States. When do you learn that these two guys who you're investigating were in the United States and that the CIA knew about it? September 12th. The day after the 9 I was handed attacks. a file with all the information that I've been asking for since November about these individuals. What was your reaction? Uh, it was horrible reaction. Um, I ran to the bathroom and threw up. Um, I was in Yemen and the, the, the reason they gave us that information is because they want us to go and talk to Father Kuso again to, to see what the heck happened. Why there was a meeting, who's there, can you identify the people who were there other than Khalad, Nawaf Hazimi and Khalid Mehdar. So we went to Fahd, and this is when they showed me, you know, I, I showed Fahd uh, the photos of the surveillance that was happening uh, in um, Southeast Asia, uh, in, in Malaysia, um, you know, about, you know, of, of the meeting that I was requesting to know about uh, for many months. Um, not well, only Ali, my recollection is that the way that the United States, and I don't remember now whether it was the CIA or other agencies, got on to the Kuala Lumpur meeting was that, that we knew about this safe house in Yemen. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, we were listening in, and we learned about the uh, Kuala Lumpur summit and that Al-Hazmi and Al-Madar and others were going there. Did the FBI know about that at the time, or that also was withheld from the, F- from the FBI? No, we didn't, because what happened is the following. We were able to get a phone number in Yemen. Uh, I still remember the phone number, 25078 number, which is the number of Ahmed al-Hada. Ahmed al-Hada is actually the father-in-law of Khalid al-Mihdar. And that was kind of like a switchboard for Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, the people in Afghanistan, when they want to call somebody, because Khalid al-Mihdar's uh, children, most of them are Qaeda members, his uh, sons-in-law are Qaeda members. So, you know, when Kandahar want to talk to somebody in Al-Qaeda, they can always find somebody to deliver the message on that phone number, right? So one of the Saudi suicide bombers who survived the bombing in Nairobi, uh, his name was Al-Wali, uh, during his interrogation, he provided uh, that phone number, saying that this is a number that when he survived and he didn't die, this is a number that he called so they can send him money and logistics to, to, to escape Nairobi. We gave the number to the intelligence community. Uh, the intelligence community were basically up on that number. And this is when they uh, received during the millennium uh, a message from Kalad to Khalid Mehdar asking him to come over. So uh, interestingly enough, that the whole um, surveillance in Kuala Lumpur uh, that went through Dubai also, because Khaled Mehdar stayed in Dubai, and you know, as we know, they, they went to his room and they figured out that he has a Saudi passport and valid visa to the United States. All these things happened based on a lead that came from the East Africa embassy bombings. And still, we were not told. Actually, you mentioned the 9-11 Commission. The 9-11 Commission came with some sections, about half a dozen, what they called misopportunities, misopportunities that kind of allowed 9-11 to happen. And one of them was not passing this information to the FBI team investigating the USS call. And, um, and I, I agree with the 9-11 Commission when it comes to this specific assessment. So who's uh, being protected here, the CIA or the Saudis or both? I, I don't know. I hope that we will have the answers. You know, after 9-11, our focus was on investigating Al-Qaeda, preventing another attack. So I wasn't really involved in, in, in that element of the investigation outside my many, many, many hours uh, talking to the 9-11 Commission and the staffers. But overall, I would like to know. I would like to know what information Jim is talking about. But look, you know, the Saudi role um, with extremism goes beyond 9-11, goes beyond what Chris Hunt was talking about on the show or what Jamal Khashoggi allegedly told uh, told, uh, Catherine Hunt. If you look at the East Africa embassy bombings, for example, Saudi connections. If you talk at the USS Cole, one of the suicide bombers, Saudi. If you look at the 9-11, 15 of the hijackers, Saudis. If you look at you know, almost every attack connected to Al-Qaeda or conducted by Al-Qaeda, you will see a direct or indirect Saudi connection. 9-11 itself, we talk about the $36,000 coming from Saudi Arabia. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed himself was operating using a Saudi passport, right? Maybe there are recent answers for these questions, but from, I hear, from what I hear from Jim, I really doubt that there is an innocent answer or answers uh, we need to know. Uh, we know uh, how we messed up. We know how the FBI messed up, how the CIA messed up, how the U.S. government messed up. Why aren't we allowed to know 
why the families are not allowed to know how potentially the Saudi the Saudis messed up. We need to know. There's a lot of questions here, and we have no answers to. Now, Jim, uh, my understanding is that just in the last few weeks, you've had an opportunity to depose under oath three of the principals involved in right. this matter. Uh, Bayoumi, the suspected Saudi intelligence agent who helped the hijackers when they arrived in L.A., Thumeri, the radical imam at the King Fond Mosque, who was allegedly tasked to provide help to these hijackers, and Jara, the uh, Saudi uh, embassy official who is alleged, according to uh, the Operation Encore document that has become public, to have tasked Thumeri uh, with providing that assistance. Uh, what can you tell us about your depositions of these principles? Yeah, so uh, we are thrilled with how the depositions went. You know, because of this gag order that, you know, has us handcuffed and would, would have me locked up if I could tell you what I know, I can't, I, I can't yet tell you the details. I can say that uh, we've, we've exposed all kinds of lies uh, you know, one witness will contradict another. Each person wants to minimize their own role and point fingers at others. And when you line it up of the 20 plus depositions we've taken, you have lots and lots of people inculpating every Saudi official. I can say that the depositions are so dramatic. I mean, you know, is there a smoking gun or guns? Yeah, there are. And uh, well, that, that would suggest you have some sort of confession by one of these no, principles. No, not, not a confession, but uh, stuff that is so damning uh, and so dramatic. If it was public, uh, you'd see a very different relationship, I believe, with Saudi Arabia. And uh, I hope in the next couple days we're going to be trying to lift the gag order. And, you know, from from day one, the, the Justice Department, in responding to our FOIA request, has used privacy interests of witnesses as a justification for the gag order, including a year after 9-11 when we asked for documents and we're told we cannot give you that information unless you secure a privacy waiver from Osama bin Laden. And that, <laughs> yeah, that is the kind really? of Really? Do you have that in writing? Yes. I would love to see that yes. document. Yeah. Uh, a year after the attack. All right, send me that and we'll post it on the yeah. Yahoo website. Right. Yeah, but 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 it, it really is dramatic. And, you know, I think the, the real question is, why is the United States government been protecting Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia has gotten away with stuff, including the murder of Khashoggi, because they haven't been called to account for 20 years. And the U.S. government has been protecting uh, the Saudi officials who were involved to avoid uh, the colossal embarrassment about the intelligence failures we've been talking about 
and other activities. But all of us talking now know that, you know, always the cover-up is worse than the initial mistake. And it they, they just keep getting deeper and deeper in a hole until we succeed and are able to tell the whole story to the families in the world. But it, it, it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. So to be fair, when you listen to Catherine Hunt's account of her meeting with Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi doesn't point to the specifics of what we're discussing here. The thing that she right. thought was golden was his general point about the Ministry of Islamic Affairs funding a radical version of Islam that has led to multiple acts of terrorism. And that's something that, you know, the certainly officials of the U.S. government have talked about for a long time. Uh, that's, you know, much has been written about. It doesn't necessarily suggest knowledge on his part of the particular help that was being given, allegedly, by these Saudi right. officials to those hijackers. Well, you know, as Ali can explain far better than I can, when you start developing a relationship and a source, it's a very rare occasion that in the first meeting, in the first half hour, you learn everything you want to know. So the reason I was so happy is, frankly, we expected you know, him to say, hey, take a hike. I'm not talking to you guys. And the mere fact that that he was willing to explore this and continue to speak to us and come up to New York and talk to me, I thought was great. So it was, you, you're absolutely right. He did not reveal any specific evidence about what Saudi officials did. But we believe that it would be a really important and productive source as we could continue to build a relationship with them. And then, you know, we all know what happened, to, you know, a year later. Right. And, and didn't this come up at a court hearing that you had? Yeah. Yeah. Tell you us know, about that. Well, we're past that issue. But the Saudi lawyers, you know, came into court, demanded of us and in front of the judge said, we want a lot of detailed information on, on potential witnesses who the families want to get declarations from or depose. And we said, uh-uh. I mean, these are people afraid of, you know, for their lives. And they have good reason to be afraid when uh, Khashoggi is just murdered. So we wanted to protect their, their safety and hold back you know, details on their, you know, addresses and so forth. But it is, you know, and, and there's a bunch of witnesses, and I can say there's no surprise to anyone. I mean, for us to get witnesses to give testimony, which they have, has been no easy thing. You have a lot of people who are scared, both scared and or embarrassed that they, you know, were with Hazmi and Midhar and didn't recognize anything. Ali, as you look at this today, Jim mentioned Operation Encore, which went on for years. And I know you know some of those who were um, uh, knowledgeable and participated in that investigation. The Bureau continues to maintain that it did not reach any conclusion that could be actionable in terms of bringing cases against 
the Saudi figures that Jim is talking about. Should that give folks pause? I mean, what's your what's your take for the fact is that the Bureau continues to not just, you know, support the state secrets privilege that has been imposed on this, but that it says the evidence simply isn't there. You know, and I don't know, I, th- I think about that every, you know, every now and then. And, uh, and I think in order to start something against Saudi Arabia, you need some kind of a smoking gun, maybe from the FBI perspective. Listening to Jim now, uh, saying, um, you know, the information that he would like to share with, the, with his clients and with the American people uh, is very damaging. That is extremely intriguing. Now, why the whole thing with Saudi Arabia is going the way it's going with the FBI and DOJ and the intelligence community, the U.S., uh, under, under many administrations, you know, under the Bush administration, under the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, and let's see what's going to happen under the Biden administration. It tells me that there is something bigger going on in this, and there is a reason they are not releasing any of this information and uh, they are keeping it tight. And we, you know, I think the American people 20 years after 9-11, with everything that happened because of 9-11, with everything that, uh, you know, with all the wars that we went through, the $5 trillion we spent because 9-11, right? We have the right to know what the hell happened on 9-11. Just to uh, wrap up here, we spent a, a bit of time talking about this gag order you're under, Jim, which is a result of the state secrets privilege that was imposed by Bill Barr and Richard Grinnell, who was then the director of national intelligence under President Trump. But um, we are, you know, coming on uh, almost six months into the uh, Biden administration. The Merrick Garland Justice Department has yet to lift that state secrets privilege. I know you are making a a last effort to persuade them to do so, but uh, tell us where that stands and um, any signals you've gotten one way or another, whether they are inclined to lift the gag order. Well, I'd I'd say this. I think it's going to happen. And, you know, I'm I've known Joe Biden for 35 years, and and I think he would be horrified. And everything I know about Merrick Garland as the prosecutor for Oklahoma City leads me to believe that he cares deeply about the victims of terrorism and the right to learn the truth. Now, at the same time, you know, we have to deal with the procedures and, you know, let Justice Department make its independent evaluation. But I'm optimistic that it's going to happen. I I believe Merrick Garland and the people in the Justice Department will react favorably, maybe not 100% gets made public, but I hope the gag order will be lifted. And listen, you know, if they said, uh, we're going to give you documents with the name of a confidential informant redacted, fine. But you can't keep from us a 16-page final report and justify its exclusion and then prohibit us from telling anything important to the, the families of those who were murdered. So I, I think they're going to do the right thing. We just got to get their attention, get them, get them focused on. And, and I do think the pressure of the upcoming 20th anniversary in just a few months, um, right. as that 
reality becomes clearer, uh, that will create right. some momentum for uh, the Biden administration to do something along the lines of what you were talking about. Whether it will go all the way is uh, is another question. But I want to, um, I, I just to wrap up here, I just want to come back to that Catherine Hunt interview because it's just a reminder of how many fascinating connections Jamal Khashoggi had. And that's been the the theme of our series, of our Conspiracy Land season uh, this year, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is a guy who went to Afghanistan at Osama bin Laden's invitation to cover the Mujahideen War against the Soviets, a guy who was friends with Osama bin Laden for many years. They had a long and complicated relationship, even though Khashoggi, of course, never endorsed the terrorism that bin Laden engaged in, and a guy who later went to work for the Saudi government. And as we describe in um, episode four, I believe, uh, of the series, people really should listen to the whole thing, was engaged in secret missions for the Saudi government to develop intelligence or information about Islamic Islamist networks in uh, Europe that were funding al-Qaeda and other acts of terrorism. So he was in a position to know a lot and perhaps to have helped you a lot. So the fact that um, what went down went down, and he was, of course, you know, murdered in the most grisly of fashions uh, a year later for lots of reasons that the the Saudis could have had lots of motivations. He had become, of course, a a relentless critic of MBS, the crown prince, and that that certainly would have been a big factor in the the minds. But anyway, I want to thank you both. It's been a fascinating discussion about a really important issue and one I suspect we'll be hearing about quite a bit more in the coming months, and uh, we'll definitely want to stay in touch with both of you. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike.